Kei ngā mātā wako te matū taumai ki te hui. Ko mihi ngā rangi tēnei e mihi atu nei ki a koutou katoa. Welcome to the hui, Māori Current Affairs for all Aotearoa. E tarua ke nei. It's the jewel in Tāmaki Makaurau's crown and it's in crisis. It's a story of generational deprivation and um, exploitation. We find out what's happening under the surface in the Hauraki Gulf. It absolutely is a wake-up call. Then he's experienced bittersweet success in the top kitchens of Europe. The pressure and the toxicity of the industry just all compounds and, you know, blows up. Now he's home, creating uniquely Māori flavours. You know, Europe has provenance. We have whakapapa, which is powerful, right? We meet Māori chocolatier Tom Hilton. It's the blue jewel in Tamaki Makaurau's crown, the playground and pātakakai of Aotearoa's biggest city. But below the surface of the Hauraki Gulf, an environmental catastrophe is unfolding. Sarah Hall spoke to Tangata Whenua about their efforts to restore Tikapo Moana to its former glory. Tikapo Moana, the Hauraki Gulf, a 4,000 square kilometre stretch of water that's one of the great marine taonga of Aotearoa. But it's a stretch of water severely under stress, overfished and overharvested. Quite simply, the gulf is in crisis. I would say it's almost in its last throes of death. That bad? That bad. But all hope is not lost, as kaitiaki, iwi, are doing all they can to protect the gulf. Rahui are in place, and Māori scientists are at the forefront of research into how we can recover. Māori have been custodians since time memorial, and what we're seeing now in uh, the 21st century is making best use, best practice of everything that we have in our toolbox for survival. It's hard to believe how plentiful kaimuana, especially shellfish, once was in the Hauraki Gulf. Giant coda were huge and easy to catch. Now they're functionally extinct. Scallops and pawa are non-existent and the mussel beds have all but disappeared. Here on Waiheke Island, stocks have been badly affected. Hedi Aroha, skipper from Ngati Power. Living off the Moana, when I was a child, to the state it's in now where my grandchildren and my children cannot just go out and harvest and get a kai for most species, it's all gone. So badly depleted, in fact, that in June, more than 100 divers surveyed all of Waiheke Island over an eight-week period looking for coda. They found just 22. It used to be a delicacy on our tables, but no, it has, it's been gone for some years. Ngāti Pawa placed Arahui on the island 18 months ago, banning the gathering of shellfish and koda. The thing with Rahui is that you put a Rahui down, you let it rest, you let it restore, 
and then you shift the rahui to another location so that one can open up. I'm just surprised that fisheries hasn't banned the taking throughout the entire Gulf of Exactly. Kona. Exactly. So we've had to actively do that through laying down Dahui and simultaneously making an application to the Ministry of Fisheries to for a 186A temporary closure. So how did it go so badly wrong in the Gulf? Nicola MacDonald from Aotea heads the Ngāti Manuhiri Settlement Trust and co-chairs the Hauraki Gulf Forum. If we keep exploiting the natural world, the taiao, then the taiao will give up on us, and that's what we're seeing. It's been generational take. The quota management system that we currently use in this country, it's not sustainable, it's not durable. We really haven't looked at how we're managing commercial and recreational fisheries. And she puts the blame squarely on our fishing practices, including dredging, seine fishing and bottom trawling. There's no place in the 21st century for these archaic methods. And if we want to be serious about restoring the Gulf for our future, future generations, then we actually need to say to all holders of quota, stop dredging the kūtai, stop dredging the tipper, the scallops, and everything else. Just two spots remain legally open for scallops in the Gulf, Hotaru, Little Barrier, and Aotea. Great Barrier. These two very special places, which actually are the nursery that feeds the entire Gulf, have been left open. Nicola recently visited the beds with Niwa, only to find them destroyed. Where there has been commercial dredging, those tipper have not returned. And anyone thinks that you can keep these beds open and continually dredge and they'll replenish themselves, you've, you've got to be joking. While iwi are fighting fisheries to put more protections in place, scientists are also working behind the scenes to implement a mātauranga Māori approach. Daniel Hikuroa from Auckland University. Let's remember that Māori have been living in and on and around the Gulf for centuries. And they lived with it in a way in which they understood the cycles they understood about managing themselves and the interactions we're gathering kai. Have Māori been given enough power, as it were, to lead the way? On the one hand, you could argue, well, no. There's no genuine enabling facilities in some of the laws or many of the laws. But on the other hand, we see these really amazing things. We see Ngāti Pāua, place of Rahui, around Waiheke, in collaboration with most of the Waiheke community. And the community has its own initiatives underway. Meet the Waiheke Marine Project. We're uh, looking at rewilding coda. We know that coda takes six years to grow to a catchable form, so it's a really long-term project. They're also trying to replenish the seaweed destroyed by Kinna. So with so few coda eating the kinna and so few snapper eating the kinna means the kinna have gone wild and they're eating all of their seaweed. So in the summertime, we go down and measure how much the kinna have eaten and we remove around about 800 per weekend, which we share to the community. So overfishing has caused a clear imbalance in the Gulf. But it's not just what we do on the water that has created the crisis. 
All the land of the catchments around the Hauraki Gulf is to be covered in native forest. And we've chopped that down either to create pasture land or to extract the, the valuable timbers. And as a result of that, millions and millions of tonnes of sediment has slowly through those 150, 160 years been washed down into the Hauraki Gulf. Local iwi, including Ngāti Whātua, are reseeding mussel beds throughout the Gulf. Called the kidneys of the sea, Kūtai clean up sediment and oxygenate the water. There is hope because through reseeding the natural kūtai, the mussel shellfish beds, that's, that goes along to the first steps of restoration. And that's what you've done here, isn't it? This is the largest reseeding of mussels anywhere in the Hauraki Gulf. Anywhere in the Hauraki Gulf, anywhere in the world. Amazing. How many mussels were put here? 150 tonnes. We're not going to stop there because our goal is 1,000 tonnes. Nati Manuhiri has also purchased three former police boats to use as surveillance, training up rangatahi to fulfil the roles. So the vessel's primary purpose will be looking after the restoration of basically all the sea life, bringing the stocks numbers up, trying to control the recreational and commercial side of harvesting to make sure that there's plentiful shellfish still in the area. There's no doubt Māori are leading the charge when it comes to saving the Gulf. And this month, Ngāti Power will launch a five-year project to look at how to protect the ocean using Māori practices. Western science is good for identifying the issues, but not resolving the issues. What we are doing at the moment is bringing in all our mātauranga experts and coming from a Māori worldview in regards to the state of the moana and what type of practices can we put in place to support the uh, restoration and regeneration of our moana space. The kaitiaki of Hauraki are hopeful these waters can be restored to their former glory, a place of abundance for future generations. If you could describe the Hauraki Gulf in 20 years from now, what would you like it to be? Oh, in 20 years uh, now, I'd like to see a beautiful, thriving gulf where our marine habitat's absolutely bursting with abundance, where I see the green-lipped carpet that our great-grandparents enjoyed actually in place, where we've got rimurimu, the seaweed growing, and that all of us together are enjoying this taonga that we've been given to look after for our next generations. Imagine that. After the break, we speak to Corrections about concerns over visitor access to prisoners. Since 2021, the Department of Corrections has been restricting visitor access in its prisons. Corrections says it's a safety measure due to a staffing shortage made worse by COVID. But it means some prisoners haven't been able to see whānau members. The Hui has been contacted by several inmates, including one at Waikiria Prison, complaining that the situation is restricting his children's ability to see him and isn't in keeping with the values of Corrections strategy Hokairangi, which aims to achieve better outcomes for Māori. So to discuss this, I'm joined by Corrections Deputy Chief Executive Māori Tōpia Rāmi. Ka tēnā koe. Tēnā koe, Mihirangi. 
How many uh, more staff do you need for these visits to resume? Well, currently uh, there is a, a vacancy of just over 400 uh, corrections officers across our network, across Aotearoa. Um, we're currently recruiting heavily, uh, and over the last three months we've enjoyed an application rate of uh, just over 1,500 people. Uh, we're quite positive about this. Um, you know, whānau visits, uh, family visits are really important uh, to ensuring uh, the people in our care and management uh, are remain connected with whānau. We're doing everything we can to turn these on. Uh, the global pandemic, COVID, was really restrictive uh, in that sense. Um, the staffing capacities has, uh, has exacerbated that. In yeah, saying I, that, I think uh, we've I'm, got I mean, currently 11 prisons. Sorry to interrupt. I, I don't think you're uh, any got, different to any other, any different to any other uh, organisation. You know, COVID has had a huge impact. But if you consider uh, the vaccine rollout in 2021, February 2021, the government needed 5,000 vaccinators and they trained them in three months. You know, why wasn't corrections thinking like, like this at the beginning of the pandemic? Uh, we've been very innovative in the way in which we've been ensuring prisoners remain connected with whānau. Uh, throughout the pandemic, pandemic uh, we've provided uh, phone cards to all prisoners to allow them to remain contacted, uh, connected. Uh, we've provided AVL and video connections uh, for family to remain connected and do video calls. And like I say, we currently have 11 prisons that are open for uh, visits uh, at this time. Um, the matter that you refer to at Waikiri, currently that is a prison that is open for family visits. I don't, I'm not aware of the blockage uh, that's happening there for that person. Uh, but if there is one, that's something I'm happy to look at. So let's just go back to the fact that we're still looking for 400 plus prison uh, staff. It's, you know, you've said in, in press statements that it takes about three months to recruit them. If the vaccination rollout can recruit people in three months and have 5,000 vaccinators ready three months later, why has Corrections not done this before? It's 2023. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, vacancies in the labour market at, pres at present across Aotearoa, not just corrections, is suffering from a shortage of workers. We're not alone in that. Our people come, our people go. Uh, this is something that we've had our eye on for some time, which is why we've been actively uh, entering into spaces such as social media to recruit people. We've been actively utilising marae. Uh, facilities and communities up and down the country over the last six months so that we can, um, you know, bring people in. Uh, last month was the first time uh, in, in, in a number of months that we've had um, more people recruit and stay with corrections than we have uh, leave. So that, those are all positive signs and signals. The issue for corrections, though, is that when this government came in, it launched a really in, uh, well, it was incredible at the time that it was launched, Hōkairangi, and it's a strategy that's specifically to, um, you know, directed and aimed at Māori. And I just want to read a little bit from it because it says Fano must have timely tailored access and support and are able to identify and access the best pathway and services for effective rehabilitation, holistic wellbeing and reintegration to prevent future reoffending. So we've now had this really long period where prisoners haven't been able to see their whānau, haven't been able to see uh, their kai tautoko, and, and it's working directly against your strategy. Uh, 
that's not the entire entirety of the story. Um, you know, corrections, we've been actively engaging uh, with families and whānau of prisoners uh, throughout the course of the pandemic, just because we've been unable to, uh, at times, allow for in-person visits. That does not stop us from interacting with whānau. But, I know but, but, no, no, but the strategy, doesn't, the the strategy doesn't say that corrections should, inter should uh, to connect with the whānau. It says that prisoners for rehabilitation and the best rehabilitation need to be able to uh, see their whānau, their tamariki, and it's not only just good for prisoners, it's the best practice to stop intergenerational crime for the tamariki. So is Hōkairangi a failure? No, not at all. Um, we've actively been keeping prisoners connected to their families and whānau by way of providing free phone calls, video calls uh, throughout the last in couple of years. We Can you guarantee that that's happening in all prisons? Because we've also been contacted by prisoners who say that they can't get any digital access. Have you got digital access for all prisoners that are unable to have uh, in-person visits with their families? Yes, all of our facilities have the ability to do video calls. Um, that's something that we've been very active uh, providing over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, we currently have... And of, how often, of the how frequent would a prisoner Zealand, be able to access that, um, that facility? Uh, prisoners are able to make uh, phone calls uh, 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 at least a couple times a week. They are allowed to provide that daily, depending on the amount of time that they've got on their um, their call cards. They can use that as they see fit. Uh, we generally try and provide uh, video calls in most of our facilities for at least uh, for prisoners uh, at least once or twice a week. Can we talk about, you, you, you just said your response to whether Hōkairangi was failing was absolutely not, so let's just talk about some of the other promises inside Hōkairangi and one of them was uh, that it would increase and build the competency obviously of Māori who would have a Māori worldview because the whole concept is a Māori worldview. So can you tell us from, I looked at some of the, uh, some of the stats in 2015-16, it was 20% Māori were, you know, made up the prison um, staffing. What, are, what is it today? Uh, I understand the, the, the entirety, you know, Corrections is a large organisation, 10,000 uh, kaimahi uh, in our organisation. Uh, I understand the, the population of Māori staff is sitting at around 22%. So you promised in a document five years ago that you were going to increase the uh, capability of Māori staff because you had this new programme that needed Māori to implement it and yet you've got 1.6% more five years later. Is that good enough? Is that another failure? No, not at all. Uh, I oversee a large workforce uh, of Māori practitioners. We've grown our special, specialist Māori, uh, kaupapa Māori practitioners in the organisation significantly over the last couple of years. They provide significant support and supervision to the rest of the organisation. Uh, we've equally uh, got a significant good representation of about 20% of Māori across the organisation in leadership positions. So, um, How many would you like? You know, uh, we're on a journey. How many would you like? What would be... Oh, it's not... A it's, 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 you know, that's, that's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, what I'm more focused in on is that we've got Māori in, 
the key positions that are relevant to the mahi at play. And um, I can tell you that I see a large group of uh, kaupapa Māori practitioners that are working tirelessly every day to support the organisation, whether it be in the community or in custodial operations. OK, you've said you're really happy with the progress of um, the recruitment programme, so when can we see those visits coming back? So if you say it takes three months to train a prison staff member, will we be seeing them in January 2023? Absolutely. Uh, so, like I said, we've had a significant um, uh, interest in uh, the community in terms of joining the corrections uh, ranks uh, in all number of roles. Uh, it takes a number of months to onboard them, Come and away. that's something that we want to do that's uh, safely and um, confidently. Uh, we'll, we're also turning on prison visits at the other prisons week by week. I know there is another one opening this week. Uh, and we're really um, pleased with the progress we're making in that space. Kia ora, we'll check back with you uh, come January. Tēnā koe e te rangatira. Tēnā koe mihi ngāmi. Next, we open a Māori box of chocolates. Māori chocolatier Tom Hilton knows how bittersweet professional success can be. Born in Aotearoa and raised in the UK, Tom's now home, creating luxury chocolates with an Indigenous twist. Kaya John Boynton, tēnei pūrongo. Māori chocolatier Tom Hilton loves to indulge in his craft. And that's what we do as chocolatiers, pastry chefs, chefs, bakers. We're creating nostalgia through taste. He's worked around the world, even making chocolates for the royal family. But the high pressure of the hospitality industry almost became too much. I think it took me to burn out. It took me to truly have a bit of a rock bottom, falling to the curb and picking myself up. Now he's launching Ao Cacao, spreading the message of culture and identity through chocolate. You know, we may be the other side of the world, but we do bloody good chocolate. And that's what I'm trying to portray. Tell the Aotearoa Teakarete story. Whenever Tom Hilton returns home to Takahiwai, just south of Whangare... Hey, Dad. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? Good, how's oh, there's some chocolate. Good, thank you. He always makes sure to bring a sweet treat for his dad, Patrick Hilton. For more than a decade, Tom's worked across the world as a pastry chef and chocolatier. I think one, one thing that inspired me is, you know, when it comes to all the pavlovas and all the desserts we used to have. Cooking runs in his whānau. His dad, Patrick, is a baker. It was the big thing about being in the UK, teaching them how to do it properly. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, making them at home with you, your mum and your sister and uh, just making it as Kiwi as I could. After his parents separated, Tom grew up in the UK with his mum. But the Nazi whātua, Ngāpuhi and Whakatohia Uri always wanted to reconnect to his whānau in Aotearoa. I was going through a bit of an identity crisis. You know, I didn't know which side I kind of felt belonging to. There was some of the things that used to uh, Upset me a wee bit with living away in the UK was, was you kids. I wanted you to bring you home so you could run wild like we all did. So at 16, he moved back to Takahiwai to live with his dad. 
a tiny community famous for its rugby league club. It was just really good and obviously learning more about our culture. Feeling like that missing piece that you always had that was missing is slowly coming back into becoming whole. It was, I guess it was a bit of a culture shock coming from schooling in England, you know, not going to school with any family and then coming to school and realising some of these are your cousins and... Although happy to be reconnecting with his whanau, Tom was struggling at school until his hospitality teacher spotted his talent in the kitchen. In a hospitality class, we learn how to be a chef, we learn how to cook, how restaurants run, and then she'd tell me all these stories of her time in London and travelling Europe and the spark, the curiosity of... Tom's curiosity led him to the doorsteps of revered Scottish pastry chef and chocolatier William Curley in London. Eventually, he worked his way up to becoming a pastry chef. But the pursuit of perfection took a toll, with Tom working 80 to 100 hours a week in a cutthroat industry. It's an intensity he struggled to shake when he returned to Aotearoa in 2017. When I came back, I was horrible. I, I, I shouldn't laugh, but in the kitchen, I was. I was constantly go, go, go. The intense pressure of his career finally catching up with him. Like, I've worked in pressure environments massively. It was more a culmination of a decade-ish of, of that intensiveness. And the pressure and the toxicity of the industry alone is just all compounds and, you know, blows up. What was that rock bottom for you? At one point, I just didn't really want to be here. And so I did attempt my own life. Tom slowly found his way out of that dark place through the help of a life coach. He wasn't sure if he'd ever return to the kitchen, but making chocolate became an important step in his recovery. Once I picked up the tools, it's like they never left, um, and it brought that love back. And chocolate is one of those things that can improve your mental health to eat it, but working with it is just the same. So, you know, you're immersed in all that smell, the feel, the touch. That was my therapy, really. Therapy which turned into ao cacao, Tom's luxury chocolate business with a distinctly indigenous flavour. Today, I'm in the kitchen with Tom, who's sharing some trade secrets. How do you tell a good, good piece of chocolate? You want to look at the shine. You also smell it. You can smell the different cacao notes and then the best way to, to test if it's really good quality, apart from the look, the feel, the smell, is just simply put it in your mouth <laughs> and try it. Creating a strong, indigenous-made product is a driving force behind Tom's mahi. So the beans come from um, a female-owned indigenous farm in Samoa, and so I want to showcase these producers, so that's why I use these different products, you know? This form of sugar, which is a uh, maple sugar, specifically comes from the only indigenous female-owned farm in the whole of Canada. He's also combining uniquely Māori flavours into his chocolates. Some of the more creative flavours include fry bread, pawa, hangi and steam pudding bonbons. You know, Europe has provenance. I, I think we have whakapapa, which is powerful, right? So telling whakapapa of cacao, where I, my chocolate comes from, the exact tree it came from, the exact ingredients that go in it and where they came from. Telling those people's story, because everyone has a story, right? Today, Tom is finding balance, 
his connection to his whānau helping to guide him. He's planning to open his first store next year in Auckland. His next dream is opening an Indigenous chocolate school. To see it carry on and carry on and carry on will be the best part. And to then see the first graduates then become teachers and just paying it forward. Like, that's the pinnacle for me. Te puna whakatongarewa te hui i tautoko.